Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Twice as hard for the same motherfucking title, but I realize that I probably won't be so lucky. Welcome back after a little hiatus there, prom party. Yes, we are recording this in the absolute one day that we can record this before BJ has to go under the knife for a second tooth extraction. <laughs> yes, I had uh, a tooth extraction and a bone graft last week. I'm getting another one tomorrow. This is the one day in the time period <laughs> between those two extractions where I've been able to sound not like Homestar Runner for an extended period of time. So yeah, you're if you're if you're on our Patreon, you're gonna hear a lot of a. Uh, that preemptive statement before some of our episodes. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, what's funny is that we didn't intend to go back to back with Mary Stuart Masterson movies. We were supposed to have a buffer, but that didn't happen for obvious reasons. We we're supposed to have a couple buffers. Mm-hmm. And like the funniest thing about it is that uh, some kind of wonderful today's film has been shuffled around the schedule probably five times this calendar year mm-hmm. because something just kept getting in the way and had to, we had to make some sacrifices and some rearranging and it's been pushed all the way back to here. <laughs> yes, it is. But Some Kind of Wonderful is a movie that people have been asking about for a while and everyone realized it's a 35-year anniversary. Mm-hmm. Why aren't you talking about it? Because we're talking about it now. <laughs> yes, and we're very overdue for a John Hughes film. We haven't done one in a hot sec. We were trying to space them out because we did do a couple of them right off the bat in the first year, and yeah. we we don't want to we don't want to blow our load too early. It's true, and there's only like a finite example of them because he only mm-hmm. did like five. Mm-hmm. They it's just, just were in three succession. of them happen to be some of the most iconic teen films of that decade. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so yes, today we are talking about some kind of wonderful written by John Hughes and directed by Howard Deutsch, a movie that I quite like. I will show my hand. This is my favorite of the John Hughes teen movies, which I know is shocking to do say you, the least. Do you have a favorite John Hughes film period? Planes, trains, and automobiles. Same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that or honestly, like the great outdoors does have like a very big sentimental place in my heart from my own childhood. But yeah, no, it's my favorite. Whenever we get around to doing The Breakfast Club, we'll see how that one holds up because mm-hmm. I have a lot of love for that one. So I do too. Yeah, we'll see. But I, maybe, maybe maybe the third anniversary we'll do that. Yeah, maybe. We'll eh, see. Yeah. Um, But this is also one of our teen movie hell episodes. Uh, For those that don't know, we do these every season. It is to pay honor and homage to Mike McBeardo McPadden, a late great author who is responsible for the book Teen Movie Hell, which is just a fantastic encyclopedia of teen movies of all caliber, uh, weird B-movie sex comedies to prestigious films that you love. 
It's a, a really, really wonderful book. It's kind of the unofficial Bible of the show. Mm-hmm. And we try to shout out Mike whenever we do any of our films from before the 90s as much as we can um, just to pay respects to him and the work that he did. Mm-hmm. Especially because this is a little bit before our time. So mm-hmm. he is the expert on this. Absolutely. We were not teens in the 80s because we were not alive in the 80s. Dude, I wasn't a teen in the 90s. <laughs> Neither was I. It's fine. We're children. It's okay. We, we're we we're, we're not like regular teens. We're adults. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so because of that, instead of going to Fandango for a synopsis like we normally do, I'm just going to read from Teen Movie Hell. I don't know why this isn't how we've always been doing our teen movie hell episodes. I'm a dingus. Well, sometimes we have guests, so that's we, true. We make them describe it. That's very, very true. I'm Good giving point. you the benefit of the doubt. That's very kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> so here is how Mike describes some kind of wonderful. Some kind of wonderful gives Pretty in Pink a sex change, so that screenwriter John Hughes could use the initial <laughs> ending for his previous smash. In the original Pretty in Pink script, Hughes had lower-class art girl Andy, Molly Ringwald, choose plucky nerd ducky John Cryer over handsome preppy Blaine Andrew McCarthy. Fortunately, director Howard Deutsch listened to audience feedback and perhaps his gut instinct and reworked the ending so that the cool chick opts for the rich dude. It's a bold reflection of, you know, how teenagers actually work. Alas, that blot of high school truth apparently did not sit well with Hughes, so he cashed in all of his post-pretty clout to whip up Wonderful. The latter movie was also a hit, but proved to be the Waterloo of Hughes's teen movie Juggernauts. After this, he switched to First Graders, Home Alone, and Big Dogs, Beethoven. In Wonderful's inversion of Pretty in Pink, blue-collar painter and sculptor Keith, Eric Stoltz, subs for the sub-working-class fashion designer Andy, Tomboy rocker Watts, Mary Stuart Masterson, takes the place of the flashy ducky. Moneyed suburbanite Amanda, Leah Thompson, is the girl version of moneyed suburbanite Blaine. That's not entirely true, but we'll get back to that later. Mm -hmm. The other main character, a rich creep who wants to befoul the budding across-the-tracks romance, gets to stay male. In pink, he's Steph, James Spader. Here, he's Hardy, Craig Schaefer. Hardy Jens, the most not a real name name. It is the douchiest name. I love it. (laughs) Pretty in Pink director Deutsch returns to his chair and essentially recreates his previous effort beat for beat right up to the through the looking glass finale when it changes so that Amanda tells Keith she likes him so much she wants him to be with Watts, who loves him more than anyone else ever could. And Keith goes home with Watts. Debate goes on regarding Ducky and Pretty in Pink being gay. Ringwald says... She thought that he was. Cryer says no. Hughes died before this became an issue he needed to address. But Mary Stuart Masterson Watts, on the other hand, seems as lesbian as lesbians can lesbianically be. (laughs) Freed from all of the Hughesian high school jerks in her immediate future, it's easy to envision a liberated adult Watts being allowed to find some real kind of wonderful. So there are a lot of small changes I would like to make to some kind of wonderful. If this actually did have sex changes, then I would be so much more down with that. (laughs) I'm so rad. And I love that Mike just gets me because, yes, I absolutely wish that Mary Stuart Masterson's Watts was a lesbian. They coded her as lesbian as possible and somehow is straight and... The way she looks at Leah Thompson. The way she looks at Leah Thompson. We will get there. We will get there. So before we dive in any deeper... It's time for everyone's favorite part of the show. 
Welcome to the morning announcements. As a reminder, you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Over at our Patreon, we offer things like our schedule ahead of time, wonderful playlists curated by Harmony, our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies, and we are currently going through our TV homecoming series through Pen15. We offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only $1. If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag thisendsatprom or at thisendsatprom. Alrighty, so normally we would have Harmony do context around this time, but because 1987 is an anniversary year, we've done a number of films. (laughs) Yeah, and like really all you need to know is that this is John Hughes' swan song for the teen genre. Yeah, that's really the main thing that's going on, but uh, we've talked a lot about context, so go back and listen to like our Princess Bride episode if you would like uh, any sort of context for what's going on in 1987. But yes, more importantly, this is the last John Hughes teen movie. And I do agree with Mike in his assessment that this sort of seems like Hughes using the clout that he had from Pretty in Pink to make the movie he actually wanted um, because Pretty in Pink's ending was famously changed. We have a whole episode on that that you can listen. It's one of my favorites, personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he wanted Andy and Ducky to end up together, and that's not what happens. So then he makes some kind of wonderful where, yes, the kids from the quote-unquote wrong side of the tracks do end up together and they are just working class romance best friends that become lovers it is the the pinnacle of every single movie anyone has ever written about the curse of the friend zone which does not exist but that's a discussion for our just friends episode on our patreon (laughs) (laughs) forever just reference that just gonna be shilling plugs all day here from like the primordial soup of the patreon from like way back on like the second month of it it's there (laughs) Very much so. I stand by what we said on that holiday classic. Yeah, it's great. It's a fantastic movie. Um, But yeah, this movie very much is sort of that fantasy sensation of like being in love with your best friend and how that unrequited romance can feel and how it's miserable. And this is a movie that allows that release of, oh, they do end up together because that doesn't happen very often in teen worlds. Uh, friendships actually just get broken up. Yeah. More likely than not. I've had several friends stop being friends with me for one reason or another because they had weird feelings they couldn't get over. Yeah. Um, I had someone who I used to be friends with who had very strong feelings for me, and the only way they could work past that was by finding something that they hated about me and hyper fixating on it until they disliked me so much that they didn't have a crush on me anymore and coincidentally didn't like me anymore. Good news. That is not a healthy way to process those feelings. No, it's not. It's quite bad. (laughs) (laughs) So that's pretty much what we're dealing with here in some kind of wonderful. And I, I just have a lot of feelings about it, but we're, we'll unpack them. So there are two women in this, but our de facto protagonist in this is Eric Stoltz as Keith. Personally, I think that this is probably John Hughes's best written teen boy character, but the bar for that is so low it's in hell. Um, I would say 
Not necessarily. Um, when we did Weird Science on the Patreon, we talked pretty directly about how John Hughes is very good at writing women, and for some reason he's very bad at writing like male characters for boys. He's bad at bi- writing boys. He's great at writing men. Yes. He's terrible at writing boys. Yes. So I wouldn't say this is his best one because he has two really strong teen boys in Ferris Bueller from you know very different things, but I would say this is the most fleshed out character that he's written. That I agree with, for sure. I mean, okay, I could argue the boys in Breakfast Club are also pretty fantastic, but I can never tell if they're fantastic as singular characters or if how they fit in as an ensemble is what makes them fantastic, whereas I genuinely like Keith as a protagonist, and I seldom like John Hughes' boy protagonists. I usually find them insufferable, and I don't find Keith insufferable. I tend to find them fine. I will say, um, you know, on a first viewing, Keith's a little a little dry. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's Eric Stoltz's whole thing, because he was not um, enough of a leading man to land back to the future, even though they had already filmed the entire movie with him. And... I'm not positive he has good leading man energy. Like, if you want to go by, like, a tomboy-type film, there's a film with Betsy Russell called Tomboy, and he seems more like a leading man in, like, a second-tier 80s teen movie. And I'm not super invested in him in this one. I just, I don't think he has the, the, the it that I want for this character. But also, there's a good chance that... I would notice a lot more because this is a very subtle and subdued movie compared to most John Hughes or 80s teen films. So it might just be more deep. It might be more rich. I might pick up on more on subsequent viewings. I think he's doing a lot more subtextual acting. I do agree with you that Eric Stoltz is not the most like charismatic lead, but I don't think that he needs to be in this because ultimately I am in this movie for the women. Mm-hmm. And that's not even like a bias sort of situation. They're just far more interesting characters. I mean, how cool is Mary Stewart Masterson? Oh my God. Is? We're, we're going to talk about her forever. I can't <laughs> like, wait. I'm so excited. She's so fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Eric Soltz is essentially playing the straight man in this movie, like literally and from a trope standpoint, mm-hmm. um, because everything is sort of existing in reference to him. Um, Watts is way too fucking cool for him, that I will say for mm-hmm. sure. Um, but what's interesting is you mentioned the the Back to the Future sort of situation. Uh, so Entertainment Weekly did an oral history of Some Kind of Wonderful a couple of years ago and interviewed Howard Deutsch, the director, as well as Mary Stuart Masterson, Leah Thompson, and Eric Stoltz. And uh, they admitted in this that the first option for Keith was Michael J. Fox. Um, who turned it down? <laughs> I don't know if Michael J. Fox could be a grease monkey. I don't know about that either. Um, and also Leah Thompson was offered a role and she said no because the original version of the script was apparently far more comedic and it was just about this boy going on the perfect date. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't working. It was really hard for them to cast this movie. So then they kind of went back to the drawing board. They made it a little bit more of a drama. They got a different director on board. 
That wasn't working either. So then they got rid of that director and a lot of the primary cast. I think Eric Stoltz is the only one that ended up staying. Mm -hmm. And they got Howard Deutsch back on. And then because I think Michael J. Fox wasn't there, then they were able to get Leah Thompson and Mary Stuart Masterson. Uh, Mary Stuart Masterson had auditioned and she had like red hair from a previous movie that was like grown out and kind of faded and, you know, kind of spiky. And they Mm -hmm. were like, oh, she's so cool. Because her character (laughs) was originally a guy. And then they were like, no, nah, let's make her a drummer and give her a gender neutral name and just make her really cool. <laughs> I mean, I'm super into that. That's fucking tight. Yeah, I think it's great. I also think that it would have been really weird to have Michael J. Fox in this with Leah Thompson because mm-hmm. there's supposed to be a romantic lead in this and you definitely don't want them to be a romantic lead in Back to the Future. <laughs> Can you imagine what kind of weirdo fan fiction like Tumblr sites would have existed in the 80s? Obviously, if Tumblr existed in the 80s. Had that happened, though, about people with Back to the Future, it would have been weird. <laughs> it would have been extremely weird. I mean, it wasn't until Game of Thrones that people really got into, like, incestuous fantasies. Yeah, it spiked real hard. Pornhub yeah. has done many a document about that. Yeah, Woo! yeah. It frequently <laughs> plays as well on their uh, year-end analytics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. If you don't know that that's a thing that comes out, this is just like a general statement not related to the movies, but if you don't read the end of your analytics from Pornhub, you really should. It is fascinating shit. You will digest more information than you ever conceived wanting, but it is really fascinating to just see everything that's there. Yeah. Very much so. Like, it's it's maybe <laughs> the most complete survey of, like, human sexuality on the internet. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty fantastic. Yeah. 10 out of 10 recommend. Yeah. <laughs> so Keith, as a character, also is the oldest son in a family with two younger sisters, which I love. I love precocious little sister characters, and you get two of them. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, one of them is is played by Candace Cameron Bure, like, when she's very little. Um. I don't want to be mean to a child because she's a child, but fuck Candace Cameron Bure. Uh, she's a hateful bigot. Uh, DJ Tanner sucks. Stephanie Tanner for life. I mean, I think she's fine in this because she only has like three lines and she's kind of a know-it-all for the for the two lines she has. Yeah, she does good. And she's perfectly fine. She's a fantastic child actor, yeah. but she's a real-life bigot so she can eat shit and live. This is one of those kill baby Hitler situations. <laughs> Where is, is, is at this point she going to grow up to be a fascist? I mean, probably because her brother's also a fascist. The whole Cameron family are a bunch of fascists. Okay, fine. I still stand by baby (laughs) Hitler, though. (laughs) You don't know that yet. (laughs) So, uh, the other sister is played by Maddie Corman. I think she's hilarious because she's, like, just old enough to be that teen little sister who's, like, getting a little nosy, Mm -hmm. but isn't old enough to, like, fully understand the severity. She's a very Jan Brady type. Very much. I like her a lot. I think she's great. Um, And then we also have his dad, because John Hughes loves a dad. Um, Mm -hmm. So, it's John Ashton. He plays Cliff. He plays Pop. Clifford. Um, And he gets to have a great dad monologue in this movie. Mm -hmm. We love a John Hughes dad monologue. Usually, it is a father-daughter monologue. But in this, it's a father-son monologue where he is being both very stern, um, but also deeply empathetic. And it's lovely. Because again, John Hughes writes great adult men. Like, he's great at men. It's lovely if you take in the whole scene, if you just get to the part where he's basically going, what the fuck is wrong with you? (laughs) It's not so lovely during that part. Right, but you you need the context for that. And this is also, I don't know if it's just because this dad character reminds me of the type of love my dad expresses. Tough love. Where it's tough love, where it's 
in one hand, it's what the fuck are you doing? This is stupid. And in the other hand, it's like, but I love you so much and I understand you have to make these mistakes, but please understand you're making a mistake. Well, it, it also is a bit of a, of a gender stereotype or I don't even know if stereotype is the right word, but you would not write this interaction if it was like the typical John Hughes dad daughter speech. No, not at all. You can't be the scruff. No, because then it's just like, oh God, is he it abusive? Re- yeah, it reads really weird that way. Exactly. And that but- says a lot about gendered perception it's just how we raise boys in our current society you can mm-hmm. be a lot more heavy-handed with them and that's generally seen as okay mm-hmm. um they're, they're a little more tough you know um but like no this dad opens up his speech by just asking like are you in trouble yeah that's the thing is he, he doesn't he gives like, him yell at faith. him yeah he doesn't yell at him he assumes like are you in trouble because like he's clearly concerned he cleared out the bank account that he's been saving forever so mm-hmm. you know that doesn't just happen out of the blue typically. Right. So he's fair and then they talk it out and then things escalate and then they talk it out more and he's like, well, you're you're going to be a fucking adult, I guess. And it de-escalates and they mm-hmm. sort of, he doesn't agree with it, but you got kind of eye to eye. Look, you had no right touching that money. I had every right. I earned it. Where's the fucking money, Keith? Dad, calm down. Listen to me. The money is not important here. It's... You don't know what's important. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. I do know what the hell I'm talking about. You just never listen to me. You only hear what you want. Will you listen to me for once? I'm listening. I'm not going to go to college. The money is gone. You can't get it back. It's over. This whole dream is not what I wanted. It's what you wanted. I never wanted it. I just didn't have the guts to tell you. Oh, you're only 18 years old, for Christ's sake. Then I'm 19, then I'm 20. When does my life belong to me? Dad, listen. I'm going out with a girl tonight, and she's beautiful, and everybody's in love with her, and she's going out with me. Get it? See, in the eyes of most people around here, I'm nothing. And so I don't start agreeing with them. I'm going to go through with this date. I just, I want to show this girl that I'm as good as anybody else. So what, are you going to impress her with money? You think that's the solution, Keith? Dad, didn't you ever have guys at your school that didn't fit in? Yeah, of course. Yeah? Well, I'm one of those guys. thought things were going okay for you. Yeah, well, I like art. I work in a gas station. My best friend is a tomboy. These things don't fly too well in the American high school. I didn't know about this. Well, how could you know about it? You're my father. Jesus, Keith. So something interesting, too, about that monologue is uh, in this part of the film, he has cleared out his bank account, which is supposed to be saving money for college, to buy really expensive earrings to try to impress a girl. Mm -hmm. And... In the first cut of the film, they had a price tag on it, which was Mm $10,000. And people were like, we don't believe for a second that this working class kid would spend that much money on something so seemingly frivolous because, uh, yeah, poor kids don't do that shit. Nope. Um, We, uh, no, like that's not a thing that would happen. I I spent most of my 20s not having more than like $100 to my name, Mm -hmm. often much less. Uh, yeah, broke kid for life. Yeah, no, no, no. I so. can't unlearn <laughs> spending habits like that. So they ended up having to reshoot some of that scene um, to take out the price in that just so that it was kind of like an ambiguous, like, oh, he just cleared out a bank account to buy earrings. It's a lot. Yeah, just it's it's a lot, but it's a un- non- nondescript money. Because once you get that specificity, then people start like 
finding the loopholes of like, nah, that wouldn't work, Mm -hmm. which I do enjoy because I would not have been able to buy into that either had it been a $10,000 pair of earrings. Like, no way in hell does this kid who works as a mechanic blow that much money on earrings. That's not how life works. Man, you could go to college for $10,000 though. Could you imagine? Jeez. Ugh, what a life. I mean, cost of inflation, it's probably like 20,000, but like still. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I find that really interesting. But because they had to do the reshoots of that, there were actually a number of reshoots done for this. And that's why Keith's hair is really inconsistent because uh-huh. he's wearing a wig. I can tell most notably <laughs> in the party scene when they're like going to throw down. Yeah. It's like a like a helmet. Yeah. It's bad. <laughs> um, yep. That's the uh, the magic of reshoots. Mm-hmm. Um, so Keith is out of the way. Let's talk about Amanda Jones played by Leah Thompson. So Amanda is described in Mike's book as being the de facto Blaine from Pretty in Pink. Like, she's the echo of that character. But it's important to note that Amanda is not wealthy. Mm -hmm. She also kind of lives in the rough-and-tumble neighborhood. The difference being is that she has found a way to assimilate with the rich people, and she borrows clothes from her friends, and she's able to sort of, I don't know, cosplay rich, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Um, But what do you think of this character? I think... This is a version of a character that we see a lot in the teen genre, whether that be something like Angel or something like He's All That. Like, it's the idea of this girl who is clearly outside of her social status, but she's not letting anybody know. And, like, we clearly see that in Pretty in Pink as well, but she's a lot more honest about not having money in that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is a really good example of that because there's a lot of subtleties to it. Like, when... Keith goes to pick her up in what I assume is a Bentley for their perfect date towards the end of the movie. Like there's sirens in the background Mm -hmm. and she's in a tiny house, a tinier house than him. Mm -hmm. And it's these little things that they don't say them. They don't need to point them out. And also this character clearly has a lot of pent up shame about her her status and Mm -hmm. her friends certainly aren't doing anything to help her with that. Mm -hmm. So it would be really painful probably for her to have that acknowledged. No, you're totally right. And something that I find really interesting is that she is hyper aware of her status because she is dating Craig Schaefer's character, Hardy Jins. With two ends. With two ends. And he's just a royal dickbag. Just mm-hmm. worst of the worst kind of guy. Walking into the girls' locker room and being like, hey, it's nothing I haven't seen before. Fuck off, guy. Mm-hmm. Ugh, can't stand him. Um, but she dates him and she's fully aware that the reason she puts up with so much of his shit is because by being with him, it helps her social standing and she isn't seen as like one of the poor kids. Mm-hmm. And, like, as soon as she even humors the idea of being with Keith, there are repercussions. Immediately. Not not just from him, but from her supposed friends. Mm -hmm. And one of the moments she has where, like, she breaks is that she is seen with him and even just being kind to him or going on a date with him. And they start talking about Aspen or, or, or Mexico or wherever. These places they can afford to travel in front of her while ignoring her because she would not be able to go. This is this is flaunting the mm-hmm. option to travel in, in, right in front of her face. Absolutely. And I think that this is so telling in John Hughes's just oeuvre of teen films. He deals a lot with class. And the reason I think he deals so heavily with class is because, as we discuss 
many times on this show, the teen movie genre and canon are very fucking white. Mm -hmm. It is almost an exclusively white genre for many, many years, and that is a problem. So it's a type of marginalization that John Hughes can actually speak to because he doesn't include people of color very often in his films as anything more than background characters. Or a punchline. Or a punchline, yes. Like like an offensive, horrific punchline. We have a rare uh, black person in this movie. He's not a named character. He's just a punk. But that's more than can be said about a lot of John Hughes movies. And he also gets an extra point because he's an alt-punk black guy. Yeah, which, which is, is something rad. that you never see. Uh-huh. Uh, wish he was an actual fully realized character, but that's John Hughes for you. He uh-huh. was a very imperfect Republican man. <laughs> I mean, all of the punks in this are a very... Um, cartoony uh, representation of what a punk would be in the 80s. Oh, very much Those are basically the closest you're going to have to like a comedic relief. Totally. And we'll talk about the punks separately because they do require their own conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, But something I wanted to point out is that Leah Thompson uh, took this role on the heels of the failure of Howard the Duck because, yes, she was great in Back to the Future, but then she did Howard the Duck, which is one of the most notorious box office bombs in history. One of Cleveland's finest cinematic exports. You know what? That was a good point. Hey, <laughs> we did end up in a in a Marvel movie post credit scene. Thank you, James Gunn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in this uh, oral history, Leah Thompson says, Howard the Duck came out and it was a huge bomb. It was very maligned and I thought my career was over. Howie came back, uh, Howie referring to Howard Deutsch, Mm-hmm. Who ends up being her husband, mind you? Um, there was nothing weird her on and these set. Howards. Yeah, there was nothing weird on set. Um, this is just the movie they met on, but they did eventually, uh, you know, get together, get married. They are still married today, and they have two kids. Mm-hmm. Good for them. So she says, "How he came back on some kind of wonderful because again they had one director and then brought him back on. Mm-hmm. He fired Kim Delaney, who I believe was playing the role originally." And my friend Eric Stoltz, who I can only presume that they met because of Back to the Future. Well, yeah, they filmed the whole um, movie together. So I think that's how they became friends. She goes, my friend Eric Stoltz rode to the top of Laurel Canyon on a motorcycle and said, Howard Deutsch wants you to reconsider the part of Amanda Jones. And four or five days later, I was shooting. Mm-hmm. which I think is fantastic. Um, and Howard Deutsch said, I was lucky to be able to have her in the movie. She elevated the part between her and Mary Stuart Masterson. It was a great dance they did together in the movie, and the movie endures because so many people identify with both of those characters. Mm-hmm. And then Leah Thompson says, the way that John Hughes rewrote it, because originally, again, it was a comedy, the character had a lot of depth. I was an icon of pretty girl-next-door virginal sexiness from doing the greatest part of all time for that, which was in Back to the Future. And some of the stuff Amanda Jones says is stuff that I was actually feeling. Like, you just love the image of me. You don't love who I am. People don't see who I am. They just see the image of me and project their thing on that, which is the truth about being a pretty young girl. There's a lot of expectations that are exhausting to try to live up to. I liked that I get to say some of the stuff that I was feeling at the time in the movie. Yeah. And I think that's why this character is so good for her because that's exactly who she is. She is this very pretty girl and with Keith not realizing he's doing it, he's projecting a lot of ideals onto her because he likes the idea of Amanda. He doesn't actually know her that well. No, um, I mean, that kind of artistic liberty with your own character is why the Molly Ringwald characters all did so great. A hundred percent. But um, no, you have this moment where Watts asks him, 
Like, what is it about her? Is it her face? Is it her body? And he's just like, "Mm, I don't know. I just, I guess her everything. Mm -hmm. Like, he's not really put much thought into it or he can't explain it. And that's, that should be a sign that you're not as into this as you think you are. And what you're into is probably very shallow and surface level. Yeah. Which ultimately, like, is true. And that's how the movie ends is him being essentially told to his face, like, you don't actually like me the way you think you do, Um, which is wonderful, but also just the doltness of teen boys of not being able to figure that shit out for themselves. All the same, I think that Amanda could stand to be single for a while anyway. And that's very much what she chooses. Is like, she's like, I was just in this shit ass relationship with Hardy and now I need to be on my own. This guy was very sweet. I appreciated the attention. You were very kind, but nah, like Mm -hmm. I need, I need to do my own thing for a little bit and figure out who I am because Ending that relationship also ended my friendships, and I don't. I need to figure some shit out. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a very mature thing for a teen girl to do, and it's why she is such a great character, and why I like her so much when I don't like Blaine all that much. Oh, Blaine, like pretty in pink. I was yeah, sorry, here, I'm still I working. Was, you're with just the walking metaphors. back and forth between <laughs> the two, and I'm just sitting here being like, "Who the fuck in this movie is Blaine?" <laughs> Sorry, sorry, yes. Her Echo character, I like her better. And that's yeah, a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm being a little mean. I do like Blaine. I just, I really like Amanda. I think that she's a character we don't get to see very often because in, in a lesser movie, she would be a villain. She would be a character that we don't like. She would be mean. And she's not. She's quite lovely. No, she's she, she is. Um, I also think that there is this almost allure to Keith from several women in his life mm-hmm. because... You've seen the other boys in this school. They suck. They're either they're either like snot balls or they're assholes. And the fact that he's just like this plain, hardworking, simple boy. Yeah. There, there is some, There's an allure to that. There, there is something alluring to that, which is funny because when he's on his date with her, he says things that like are just blinking red lights later on where like she's having kind of a freak out when they're at oh, dinner you need to calm down you need to calm down or he says like you know what you have a really nice smile you should smile more right where it's like <laughs> those weren't bad things yet <laughs> no we hadn't learned that those had become the drawstring doll mottos of a bunch of shitty men <laughs> yes no he's just genuinely trying to like make conversation and be nice and not doing a great job because again they're not really very compatible No, they're really not. And they do have absolutely lovely dates. Um, They go to the Los Angeles, I think, Contemporary Arts Museum or Museum of Contemporary Arts. Um, They go to the Hollywood Bowl when it's empty, which is just is just so gorgeous and just all encompassing Mm -hmm. and also a thing that could never happen ever again. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. Have you ever been here before? Yeah, sixth grade, I, I, I don't remember. <laughs> I come here all the time. Never been here at night, though. <laughs> this place is my church. I can come here and what anybody says about me doesn't matter. I have to come back here when I could spend more time. We have all night. 
Uh, Leah Thompson in this interview says that every time she goes to the Hollywood Bowl, she remembers sitting on the stage and how cool it was to be there. Mm -hmm. And uh, Howard Deutsch was like, it was such a difficult night and it took all night. The Hollywood Bowl is enormous. And if you're going to shoot it, you have to shoot it wide, medium, tight, tighter. And the idea for that scene was that so Watts would have that feeling of being crushed emotionally. But from her point of view, seeing these two little specks on the stage, which I think is just beautiful visual poetry. Mm -hmm. And... uh, Leah Thompson was like, yeah, it's a it's a weird, big, lonely place, but it's an interesting idea to make this very, very small scene about these little diamond earrings and put it in this epic place. And I agree. I think that it's a really nice juxtaposition of just being in this massive, like, outdoor arena to focus on something so tiny. I think that's – I think that's really – beautiful mm-hmm. i like howard deutsch as a director i think he's really good no there's good shots in this scene in particular really all of the date scenes are pretty nicely shot everything else is a little you know what you would expect but those ones he gets to flex like the museum's at night so everything's yes, dark so and the paintings pretty. are lit and i don't know it's 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 good to look at <laughs> and so speaking of the paintings because we do know that keith is an artist and he does paint uh, a picture of amanda uh, apparently there were like 12 of them made because no artist could just like get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the extras is in Howard Deutsch and Leah Thompson's home. Uh-huh. And the rest of them are like in some prop lot somewhere in Paramount. Gotcha. Which I think is interesting. But I love that they have one like in their house. <laughs> I think that's so sweet. I, mean, I hope it's nice and not like a little fucked up and they picked it just because it's bad. Like right? there's something about that that I like, but I just hope I just hope that Leah Thompson's not like I want I want to take this one home because the eyes are a little too far apart. <laughs> like my nose doesn't look like that. Just oh god. <laughs> yeah. So, I am going to wait just one more moment before we talk about Watts because I feel like once we get started, we're not going to be able to stop. Sure. So I do want to do our side little segue and talk about the punks. We want to talk about Casey Jones? Yes. <laughs> so the main punk is played by Elias Cotius. I don't know if that's how you actually say his name. My apologies to you, Elias. Um, he, yes, he is Casey Jones in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. Um, but more importantly, in this movie, he plays a character simply named Skinhead. Mm-hmm. And this brings up a really interesting conversation because obviously in today's world, skinhead is a very charged word and it means something. Mm -hmm. But Harmony, this is your time to shine, baby. All right. So skinhead as like a movement or a a group of people was not always uh, ubiquitous with, with racists and fascists and Nazis. I know that we're like a bit on the younger side uh, compared to like this film. So we only remember a time when it was associated with neo-Nazis. Yeah, we basically all grew up with the American History X understanding of skinheads and not much before that. Yes. So um, skinhead as a thing, uh, I learned all about this in the In Defense of Ska book by Aaron Carnes, is a, a movement that started in the 50s and 60s and was basically like working class solidarity for like poor British kids. And in the late 70s and early 80s, it saw a revival and became heavily intertwined with, like, the two-tone music movement of ska, as well as, like, skinheads now intermingling with, like, Jamaican British rude boys. Right. And if you don't know what a rude boy is, that's what Rihanna's talking about when she says, come here, rude boy, boy, is you big enough? Yes. (laughs) That's what she's talking about. Yes. So, um, skinhead, unlike other forms of punk... 
at the time, whether that be like new wave, which new wave wasn't meant to be like all synthesizers. It was like the new wave of alternative, mm-hmm, but then mm-hmm. it just became like flock of seagullsy. Right. It became um, synth pop. Yes. So before that was the idea, like whether it was new wave or like seventies punk, that aesthetic was designed to be flashy and jarring. Skinhead aesthetic was designed to be practical. Mm-hmm. You have like one pair of shoes. They're probably Doc Martens. You wear those to work at a factory and you wear those just around the town because all you do is walk around the town because you don't have money. And also, this is the time period when Doc Martens were literally supposed to last forever. Yeah, Doc Martens used to be so good, and now they are just the goddamn worst. <laughs> so, yes, uh, skinheads were designed to be practical. And I kind of love the idea of this character who is a skinhead, which, by the way, his name's Duncan, but he's credited as a skinhead. Um, I kind of like him teaming up with our three main characters Because if he is a proper skinhead, which is up for debate because, yes, Southern California did have, like, a bumping ska scene at the time. Mm -hmm. But also he hangs out with, like, a wide variety of, like, ambiguous alternative kids. Um, He has, like, a cool, like, black punk that he's friends with. He has a guy that looks weirdly like an American movie character who Mm -hmm. wears a Led Zeppelin shirt. It's not really, like, strictly one scene. This is just where all of, like the alternative people in the fuck-ups go because they met in detention, I'm guessing. Right. It's very hairspray in that in that liking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So most likely, these are all of, like, the broke kids who come from difficult homes, either financially or personally. And I kind of like the idea of, like, the good side of Skinhead teaming up with our working-class main characters. Because, like, in the 80s, that's when it splintered. It became, like, the very, very far-left Skinheads and then the far-right Skinheads. Mm-hmm. And... The left is just not as well known as the horrible neo-Nazis that we would get in our time, you and me. Right. Um, It's one of those things where it just got co-opted to a point where there was really no going back. Mm -hmm. And we see that even today. Oh, yeah. Uh, I saw Feels Good, Man. (laughs) It was a bad time. (laughs) God, yeah. Like, so many things just get kind of co-opted by the right and then... There's really no going back. Like, Uh, it's just done now. Yeah, like John Cena's okay symbol. Right, is now a white power symbol. So that's gone now. Like, we can't make the okay symbol with our hands anymore. It's dead. Like, it's been killed. It's just, it's just, that's the power of fucking fascism, just claiming shit, you know? Right. And that's what happened to the skinhead movement, because the entire purpose of the literal skinhead was so that they wouldn't get their hair caught in machinery. Well, yeah, it also did helped with, like, bugs. It Mm -hmm. was easier to keep clean. It was practical. Exactly. And it is very interesting, though, because this is a movie that presents a character who is, again, credited as skinhead as somebody that we're supposed to like. And I think for audiences coming to this movie without that knowledge, it might be like, all right, hold the fuck up. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. what is up with this weirdo Henry Rollins guy uh, who is named... Such a Henry Rollins type. (laughs) He's such a Henry Rollins type. But this weirdo Henry Rollins guy who is a skinhead and I'm supposed to root for him, but it's like, well, it didn't mean what it started to mean in the 90s. Like, this movie is happening right before, like, that hard split became, like, line in the sand. Skinheads are kind of, like impossible to reclaim like it's dead like that that movement means something now but in in 1987 it wasn't quite there yet this is right beforehand so when we're talking about time capsule teen movies this movie might be like the last representation of the non-fascist skinhead 
Uh, in in mainstream stuff, yeah. Which is funny, because, like, especially since he's a Henry Rollins type who definitely wants to just, like, beat up preppy guys and maybe burn down their house. I'm just projecting. He doesn't say that, but I would believe he would. <laughs> um, he's probably into hardcore. <laughs> so, like, far removed from Ska. But again, all of this, like, alternative scene just kind of, like, it, it intermingles. That's mm-hmm. That's how it should work, and that's what's cool about it. Oh, definitely. And here's the thing. I like this character. I think he is like a kind of lovable dolt. Um, I particularly like the scene where him and Keith are showing off their drawings and he decides to break the top of the desk off that he because he'd been carving. I think someone choking a chicken with uh-huh. and he carved into it with a big ass knife. So he just breaks the top of the desk off so you can go, hmm, look at my drawing. It's really funny. And apparently from what I learned in this oral history, the character was only supposed to be in like one scene. I think the detention scene. Probably. And they all were like, wait, this guy is magnetic. We love him. We need more of him. Yeah. He's um, Casey Jones. <laughs> so Eric Stoltz was like, we all wanted to have more Elias Cotes in the film because he was beloved. In the original script, he only had a few lines. And when we discovered how unique and talented he was, Howie Deutsch kept expanding the role. And Leah Thompson says... In that scene, I slapped Hardy and left, and they added the gang coming in because Elias Cotius was such a revelation. Mm -hmm. And I remember being so transfixed with his performance. That's why they did the reshoot with the party adding him in, because he came off so well, you really wanted to see him again. And you can tell if you watch the movie that Eric Stoltz's hair changes, because he's wearing a wig. Oh, it's (laughs) such a bad wig. But, like, I do like that because that that makes more sense, because he's... if, If this was Hardy's party... And he was getting it, Hardy's party, and he was getting into a fight with Keith, it would be, why would he ever back down? Right. It's like all of his friends and acquaintances versus one dude. Mm-hmm. I think it makes much more sense for like these rebel rousers where it's like, oh no, they're scarier than you. Yeah. And they could absolutely probably burn down your house if you fuck with them. That makes way more sense for like intimidation and getting out without, you know, Keith getting his ass whooped. Yes, agreed. And I just, I love that they're there and I love that it does sort of have this, like, kind of like hairspray connection of, like, the friends you meet in detention. Yeah, kind of or, thing. <laughs> or even something like, I don't know, like a Pee-wee's Big Adventure where, you like, you, you see these the trope of befriending bikers because they're nicer yeah. than you thought they were. Yeah, and that, that's and that's just true to life. Yeah, like, who they're are all the, working class people. Yeah, who are the people who show up to, like, protect funerals from the Westboro Baptist Church. Fucking bikers. The mm-hmm. Hell's Angels show up. Bikers are fucking cool. Yeah, I love I love I, friendly tough guys. I know, I know that bikers, like, the, the, they, they were, like, the original cowboys, and now it's getting to the point where it's just like, yeah, it's a bunch of fucking racists that really like American fucking flags. wild hogs. Yeah, like, it's, it's become this whole other thing. But, like, I believe in the good rebellious bikers still. Yeah, I do too. I think that they are heavily eclipsed by bad bikers, in the way that skinhead eventually came to be associated with something else. Definitely. And I think that's like a, such a important thing to be included in some kind of wonderful, like when we talk about teen movies as time capsules, this is an example of that, of like, this is what like hardcore punks and bikers used to be like, is they were the people who defended the little guy. Like that's what a skinhead was. Like mm-hmm. you were scared of a skinhead because he would punch you in the face if you were a bigot. Like that's what we need. And then it got fucking co-opted because they take everything. Yes. And again, this is a, like a very much a caricature of what a punk might be like. Oh. Yes, like, this is he's not a cartoon like, character. Yeah, this is not like suburbia or something like that. Again, like the punk scene in the 80s was primarily built out of like uh, very macho displays of punk. Uh, so 
it, it's not exactly the same sort of thing. You could also make, I guess, make an argument that they're like, well, maybe they're like metalheads as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe they're an amalgamation of the two. But I also think John Hughes just did not understand like the decline Mm-mm. of Western civilization. I don't think so. <laughs> punk scene that really exists because John Hughes does not know how to write outside of like suburban sub- white. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's surprising that this movie is not set in Chicago. Yeah, so I I thought that was a very interesting thing as well because Pretty in Pink is set in Chicago but was shot in Los Angeles. And this movie... Noticeably. Noticeably in Los Angeles. Angeles. (laughs) And this movie, they just decided to put it in Los Angeles. I think it's because they were going to shoot again because Howie Deutsch was going to shoot in Los Angeles again. Mm -hmm. So rather than have the weird, like... Suburban palm trees. Yeah, the Always weird anachronism the of that. Um, so I think that's that's probably part of it. But I think that it's it's nice. And I mean, they were making so many movies about the valley in in the eighties, so mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. Like, there's a one scene where they're outside of a mall at one point. Mm-hmm. So you've got that going on for it. But the time has come to talk about our girl Watts. How do you feel about her? I mean, there's a reason the movie opens on her being sweaty and drumming and being awesome. She is the fucking coolest. Right. Watts is quite possibly my favorite female character John Hughes ever wrote. Okay. And that is a big statement. I love the Molly Ringwald trilogy. I love so many of the characters that he's written. I love Ali Sheedy from most of the Breakfast Club. Yes. And I think that's why I love Watts so much is because she starts out being like rat as fuck tomboy like they call her tomboy so much in this movie um rat as fuck totally queer coded very alternative and she gets to stay that way the whole movie she gets the happy ending without having to sacrifice who she is Mm -hmm. and that rules because that is not a thing that happens a lot in john hughes movies no and she is just like her style in every scene looks awesome like specifically um the gloves with the tassels. Even though those are so impractical for drumming, they are so fucking cool. And Mary Stuart Masterson, at least as of three years ago, still has them. I fucking love that. Which rules. Like fingerless <laughs> red leather gloves with tassels. It's a statement piece. Yes, exactly. That is fashion. That is intentional. And like she has like cropped leather jackets and I don't think she's wearing a bra. And like there's the thing where it's like, well, my mom said when I grew up, I'd have big boobs and <laughs> then they never happened. <laughs> and it just doesn't happen. So she's just out here being like kind of flat chested and very dykey. Like yeah, the yeah, way yeah. she looks at Leah Thompson, which at first it seemed like a 16 candles where mm-hmm. Molly Ringwald is comparing her body like that isn't fully gone through puberty to like her more buxom classmates. Mm hmm. And I think, okay, that's that. But no, there's plenty of other scenes. Like when they're driving around, like she's looking in the mirror at her. And I guess you could say like, well, what does she have that I don't have? Like, why Mm -hmm. do you get to be with him and I don't? Like there could be some jealousy to it. But it's like, oh, no, it seems very longing, though. Every shot is framed very, very longingly. (laughs) And part of me thinks that it's sort of kind of the the male gazy directorism of it where they don't realize that this is coming off like – romantic mm-hmm. <laughs> when it's supposed to be more introspective mm-hmm. but you're totally right because there is a scene uh where they're in the locker room together and she's changing and she is 
analyzing her body. And mind you, like, Leah Thompson's standing there in a way that nobody would be standing there. Like, she has, like, one leg up on the bench and is, like, posed. And I'm like, no, who just sits in the locker Who just stands in the locker room and stands like that? Yeah, no one in a million years. It's a beautiful shot. It looks lovely. She looks marvelous. But it's <laughs> but... not happening. That's not real. And then, like, two seconds later, they're like, are you wearing boys boxers to Watts? And yeah, they like they call her up because she's wearing like boys underwear and she's very much like, uh, yeah, I am. And that's the thing that I like about her is that she does not. The only time she like feels bad about herself is when someone tells her like, hey, you're supposed to feel bad about this. Like you should be embarrassed at how you mm-hmm. look like that is the only time she ever feels weird about herself. Otherwise, she's very confident. She knows who she is. She owns who she is. Mm-hmm. And she's like, and I get it. Like, I'm not the person that someone like you is going to want to be with because you would rather be with this girl. You'd rather I be get with it. the femme. Yeah, I get it. And I think that that is such a powerful statement because this very, like she is such like a hot mask lesbian <laughs> in this movie she just is mm-hmm. and yes i do i do wish that watts goes off to college and learns some things about herself um because baby you are not straight <laughs> well, i i think it's very uh it's very gay in that she's infatuated with the one man in her life where it's like well i have to love him Mm-hmm. If, if I don't love him, then who else would it be? Yeah. Where you're not ready to accept things. Because, like, she gets called a dyke and a lesbian in this movie plenty of times. Mm-hmm. It's it's not like, oh, hey, we're jumping to conclusions. Like, oh, no, everyone has this perception. And there is sort of this underlying thing with her where I almost feel like she's – where it feels like she's very aware that men are not supposed to be attracted to her. Because the way she presents herself is not in a way that is is appealing to them. But she's over here being like this sort of short-haired fucking chick drummer who is just rad-looking. Like all of the coolest 80s women that I would want to be like. So this is something that I think is really interesting that I learned from this oral history. And I'm very curious to how you feel about it. And I saved this for a reason. Mm. So she says, the character changed a great deal after I was hired. The character's name was Keith. And if it was written today, you would probably have said, oh, this is a trans character. She would probably change her pronouns the way that it was written originally. Her name was Keith. She wore BVDs. She was very butch and was his friend almost like a guy, not as a tomboy. But then they said, well, why don't we just pick a drummer and have a gender neutral name, like a last name or something. And I ended up with Watts. For the Rolling Stones, Charlie Watts and Eric Stoltz's character then became Keith. Mm-hmm. So even after they were like, okay, well, it's going to be a, a girl character. They still had her as a girl named Keith who was butch as fuck. And like, I love that Mary Stuart Masterson has enough knowledge to look back at this character and look back at the way the character was originally written and going, oh, we didn't have a name for this at the time, but like this was a trans man. Like... That's what this character is. How very just one of the guys. Y- uh, kind of. Another yeah. short hair icon. And you know what? Maybe Mike was onto something by using the word sex change in, you his, know? in his synopsis. Yeah. And I think that that's really interesting is that we have this character who, as originally written, probably would have in today's day and age been viewed as a trans man. But then because they gave the gender neutral name, because they were like, oh, you're going to be a chick drummer and whatever, then she comes off as kind of just like a lesbian in this whole movie. Mm -hmm. But they have her play straight. And I have two schools of thought on it. Because on one hand, I love the idea of showing 
that, you know, gender presentation has nothing to do with sexuality. And you absolutely can be a straight woman and be masculine and be mm -hmm. butch because that's a real thing. And I think people are like terrified of that. Yeah. But then at the same time, it's like, but she's just so painfully coded like a lesbian in this movie that it's like, just go for it. Just it feels, fucking go. It feels a little bit like you need to pick a lane. And a little the bit, movie yeah. didn't really pick a lane. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that for sure. Um, but it, it just makes this movie really complex and interesting to analyze through a 2022 lens mm -hmm. because I can absolutely see people similarly to just one of the guys who look at that character and go, oh, this is a, a lesbian to me, or look at the character and go, oh, this reads as trans to me. That's mask representation. That's that mask representation, yeah. yeah. Um, or I can even see just kind of like butchy straight girls being like, nope, this is the first time I ever saw myself in a movie. And I think that that is such a magical thing to exist in a movie where all of these different reads can exist and they can all be correct simultaneously. Well, especially for, you know, an 80s movie, obviously, but like a mainstream 80s movie. Yes. This is a John, a John Hughes John fucking Hughes movie. Yeah, this isn't like the goofy sex comedies that I normally like to talk about where you have like more hard edge characters like this. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that she also gets such emotional vulnerability as well mm -hmm. because she's obviously, she's in love with her best friend and she's agonizing over it. But it's one of those loves where she is willing to like put herself through pain if it means that like he'll be happy with this girl because she's like, oh, well, chauffeur you on your date. And you can tell that like part of her is offering because she probably wants to like creep and see like, you know, well, just to be close. Yeah. yeah, to be close. But then there's part of her that's like, but I genuinely want him to be happy because I love him. And I think that there's something about that powerful of a love that you have as a teenager, mm -hmm. because obviously as an adult, you yearn. You know? Yeah, it's you, yearning. And like as adults adult, don't generally yearn the way that teens do because yeah. we're jaded and hurt. <laughs> and also because we also are like, I'm not willing to put myself through that amount of pain to like appease you. Well, things are also complicated, like when you're an adult and you're dating, because it's like, oh, well, now like we're out on our own and I have to worry about like your debt and my <laughs> flat feet and just like there's so many things up in the air. I don't know. <laughs> totally. And like obviously I would never say like, you know, the the real sign of love is that you put yourself through agony in order for your partner to feel better. Like no, 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 no. That's not what we're saying. But we're saying that when you're a teenager, you feel compelled to do that because the emotion is so overwhelming that you don't know what else to do with it. So you make Silly decisions mm -hmm. that often come at your own expense. Yeah, I mean, this whole movie is silly decisions coming at people's expenses. Like, Amanda, Watts, and Keith all could be living much happier lives far sooner if they were just honest and able to communicate, but that's mm -hmm. not proper teendom. Yeah. <laughs> Do you miss me, Keith? Do you miss not being around me? This isn't the third grade anymore. She doesn't love you. It's a joke. It's all a joke. How do you know? I'd bet my hands on it. You don't want to make that bet. Yeah, I do. I've been thinking a lot lately about you and me. And I came to a conclusion that I didn't want to deal with. But now that we talked, I can't hide it anymore. I think we'd get along much better if we didn't spend so much time together anymore. Why? Because I'm driving you crazy, and you're driving me crazy, and I'd rather not see you. 
and have you think good things about me than have you see me and hate me. Because I can't afford to have you hate me, Keith. The only things I care about in this goddamn life are me and my drums and you. So speaking of, you know, putting yourself through hell to, like, give something positive to the person you love, I want to talk about that kiss practice scene mm-hmm. where Watts is obviously like, you know, I don't even know if you know how to kiss. Like, you can try on me, blah, blah, blah. going to fucking nag him. <laughs> kind of, yeah. I think you're a bad kisser. Prove um, it. <laughs> the kissing scene is shot in a way that is so romantic and sexy in like a filthy, filthy way because they're in the garage. I mean, he's filthy. His hands are so gross. And I want to know what in me is broken that I see like literal filth. And I just go, damn, that's a good kiss though. Mm -hmm. Because you're not even thinking about it. (laughs) And like you're thinking about other things, the point where you're not even like, oh, get your oily grease monkey hands off me. And the way that it's shot, like the camera follows them in such a way that is just really beautiful and really like sexy, but it doesn't feel like gratuitous. Like Mm -hmm. it feels sensual. Like that's the word I wanted. It's such a sensual kiss. And then, you know, she pulls away and she butches out immediately. She's like, yeah, yeah, you're fine or whatever she yeah. says. But she gets. I'm not like, blushing. Yeah, it very much has the same energy of like Danny and Kanicki in Greece when they hug because they are so proud. And then they immediately pull away and have to like fix their hair to like, act macho she, again. She immediately is giving this like, yeah, no homo kind of fucking Yeah. Vibes oh, my God. Yes. Like <laughs> if this was made in 2022, she would kiss him and go no homo. Like that. Yeah. That's very much how it feels. Also, I mean, if I were to ever take a career move, then I've considered multiple times to become a mechanic because then I know that I'm not getting ripped off when my car breaks. (laughs) And it's good to know that if I'm sexy enough, you won't care how dirty I am. I mean... I might make you clean your fingernails before you put them in certain areas in my my proximity. Um... But yeah, no. There's something like weirdly hot about it. I don't know what it is. So that's that's what I'm all these broken. Lifetime movies have tapped into, man. No, it's not even Lifetime. I think it's just because I'm Midwest garbage. So like, I grew up around people that were always kind of dirty. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, like, it's, an, it's industrial. Yeah, there's like something hot about that. I don't know. I'm it broken. reminds me of home. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the same thing happened when the bear hit Hulu, and everyone was talking about Jeremy Allen White, and they're like. Man, that looks like a guy at a restaurant with dirt under his fingernails that would ruin your life, and I'm into it. And mm-hmm. like, I had this moment where I'm like, "Yeah, I get it. Like, I don't like men, but I, fu- I get it. I understand." I mean, there is something to be said about a dude who's like visibly unperfect. Like, yeah, yeah like you could say, "Oh, he's a fixer-upper," but it's just this thing of just being like, "Yeah, but." I don't know. There's something compelling about him not being together fully. Mm-hmm. Like, even if it's just purely like in his presentation. Yeah, sure. You could clean him up and put him in a tuxedo and then go eat fucking caviar with him. But that's not who he is. Yeah. Like, you can do that. But that's not authentic. That's not. There's there's not something to that. Um, You're absolutely right. And like, <laughs> like, and I can't put my finger on it. And I'm sure people listening to this are either like yelling at their headphones right now trying to like add their own commentary or they think that we're just both on a one-way ticket to banana town and that we're disgusting for (laughs) being into this but like the same thing goes for women though too like this would be such a weird segue 
Do you remember like the hot lesbian mechanic that worked at the oil change place in Cleveland? Yeah. She was so hot. And like the fact that she was like in a jumpsuit and filthy, I was like, oh my God, this makes you so much hotter. And like, I don't know why, what is wrong with me where like that is the hottest to me? It's like you would come home from the bar like super late working and we're like a little bit sweaty and like your makeup was a little bit fucked up. And I was always like, damn. Oh, it just looks lived in. Yeah, 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 I think that's what it is. Like, you look lived in. Like, we it, like that as people who are from the Rust Belt. Yeah. I figured it out. Okay. This is going to be a terrible metaphor. You ever go into those houses that are so clean you don't feel like you can touch anything? Uh, yes. One of my grand my grandparents on my dad's side had cream carpet and white couches with plastic on them. Yeah. It was horrible. So when people are like a little bit too polished, I get intimidated. I'm like, I can't touch you. Like, y- you're too perfect and too put together. I can't do it. But if there's somebody that's like a little bit messy, I'm like... I could tear that shit up. Well, also, <laughs> I just think that there's something to be said for mess. Like, I always, the women that I've always, always let into, I'm like, yeah, I like mess. <laughs> I'm attracted to mess, even if I get a little close and then go, oh, that's too messy. Um, but I think there's something about that because those people are just out there living. Yeah. Like, those people have experiences. Yeah, yeah, it does. It feels like you're somebody who is alive and oof, I like it. There's there's just so many people that I've met who can't speak to anything with any kind of authority because they always did the safe thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's what you uh it's what something like the girl next door is about. Yeah. Only he never ends up with the, you know, hot porn star girlfriend. And he just keeps being like a boring fuddy-duddy for the rest of his life. (laughs) It's like, sure, you can get with that guy, but like, don't you want him to like be challenged? Mm -hmm. Don't don't you want something something more to happen that like gives you character? Mm -hmm. Like some guys are just safe. Maybe this is the appeal so many of us had to like skaters. Because they're all kind of dirty and sweaty and scabby. Kind of. <laughs> Maybe that's the appeal. Maybe we've we've cracked that code. It's just it's rugged, but like in a in a boyish, punky way. Yeah. Eh, I don't know. <laughs> so would you believe me if I told you that that scene was not in the script? Really? Did they just go for it? So the scene was not in the script, and they were shooting everything. And John Hughes was like, "We need one more scene." And then he kind of came up with this idea, and thank God he did because it's fantastic. Um, but Howie Deutsch was like, yeah, that scene wasn't in the script, period. And John was like, we need one more scene. And I remember him saying, let's call it the kiss that kills. He wrote the scene literally in front of me in under a half hour. Okay. Which is great. And Eric Stoltz said, Mary Stewart and I had a terrific working relationship and we were pals, which always helps when you have that kind of scene. It was also a very hot and sweaty day in Los Angeles. Uh-huh. So it, it was physically hot. Mm-hmm. And Howie Deutsch says, it's always moving to me when people are falling in love, where there's an electrical moment that's rare. It's the way you touch each other. It's not just the kiss. It's everything. Every part of your anatomy is alive. And so we talked about showing all of that. Mary Stuart Masterson says, it was very cool because of how it was shot. And I thought it was really smart. It's so fun when you do a scene like that. And it's shot in a way that doesn't emphasize the dramatic material of the kiss. And Deutsch said, I had a great cinematographer named Jan Kaiser. And we collaborated on it. We shot a master, and when we started to cover it, it seemed like, why not be more lyrical about the show and let it flow? That's how it feels like that. It's not just editorial cuts, because it's designed. Oh boy, is it. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> it is so poetic and lovely. And to think that that moment was almost not there is just shocking to me because it's so good. And it sets up so many stakes for these characters. I mean, we get a flashback to it when Keith finally has his, oh, shit, Watts moment (laughs) where he, you know, flees after her and gives her the earrings and, you know, says, you look real good in my future. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I think you absolutely need that scene, partially because of the flashback and also because the ending of this movie comes up pretty abruptly. It's very fast. Yeah. Um, it's very, very fast. I also haven't ever been like a hundred percent sold on the whole like earring subplot anyway, because I do think that it's a little ridiculous, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I do think that it is just the kind of big romantic gesture that an idiot teenager would do. Oh, of course. Like women love jewelry and flowers and chocolate and whatever. It makes me think about like Zach in Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead who spends a shitload of money on his girlfriend who then immediately dumps him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says things like, she's my moon goddess. And it's like, you spent how much money on a diamond? Mm-hmm. What the fuck? Uh, it has that kind of energy, I sure. think. Um, and I also weirdly love that there's connective tissue uh, motif-wise between this movie and The Breakfast Club, where a very, very expensive earring is like the ultimate sign of love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that that's really interesting. I mean, there's a few references to The Breakfast Club and also just John Hughes's previous work. Like, this is very much his, like, reprise for things. Like, mm-hmm. you have Watts playing street craps with all of, the, like, the valet drivers, and she has the line of, like, you mess with the bull, you get the horns. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff like that that's in there that I think is really sweet. And in a weird way, some kind of wonderful to me feels like John Hughes's love letter to this era of his career, mm-hmm. because this is his last teen movie. I mean, he would go on to do, like, Curly Sue and then Dutch, which are both, like, parent, small child, like, preteen child movies. But that's very much him from, like, the perspective of, like, a dad type. Yes, uh, is not from the perspective of teens. But I think so- Some Kind of Wonderful is a, cu- a perfect cumulation of all of the best parts of John Hughes. Um, and it doesn't have a lot of like the scathing, terrible parts of it. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't have the really offensive racist jokes of something like 16 Candles, nor does it have the weird like rape culture vibes of some of his other films. It doesn't have like the sexism of weird science. Yeah. It just... And it, it, I think it handles class a little bit more gently than it does in Pretty in Pink. Well, it's because the three main characters are all, you know, working mm-hmm. class families. Yeah. And I just think that this this is the one that I wish people talked about more in terms of his teen movie canon. Because I think it's his most honest. It's obviously not as iconic. It's not as memorable as some of the others. But I really think he's doing something special here. It's also aged pretty well, all things considered. Um, Of course, I wish that Watts was just canonically gay, but I wish that about most characters in movies. Uh Um, So that's not like specific to this movie. That's my own personal biases. Um, And obviously it could stand to have more diversity, but that's fucking every movie from the 80s. Uh Um, But ultimately, like my opinion, this is his, his best teen movie. And I've felt that way forever. And it's a bummer that no one talks about it. And it doesn't get the same love that a lot of the other ones 
do. Well, it's certainly better than Weird Science by a Country Mile. Oh. And I would argue that it's quite a bit better than 16 Candles. I would too. So I don't know. It just doesn't have. It doesn't have those iconic scenes that people no. remember. And it, I doesn't, think... it doesn't have the yucks. And I think it's because a lot of the iconic imagery of this is very specific to Los Angeles. Yeah, there's that too. Um, and I think that that makes it something that is not easily relatable to a lot of uh, kids watching it the way that they can any of the stuff that's set in Chicago because even... The Midwest kind of looks a little bit the, like everywhere. Yeah, the Midwest can kind of be a stand-in for a lot of places. Yeah. Um, it's a clean slate in that regard. But my opinion doesn't matter. This show is all about you, baby. Thank you. I don't think that's true. You generally lead the discussions. I know, but you have the final word. Oh, well. <laughs> so some kind of wonderful is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you buying them a tickets so they can go on their own? So I wasn't sure how I was feeling about this one when we were watching it, because when you go into this movie, knowing what you know about John Hughes and how he writes comedies, how he writes films, how he writes teendom, um, this is not what you would expect because mm -hmm. it's got funny moments, but it's not a comedy. Mm -hmm. It's, it's much more of like a slice of life drama yes. that has humorous moments. Oh, yes. Um, it <laughs> feels more like a grower than a shower. Mm -hmm. And given that he's got a lot of experience in teendom by this point, and I think a lot of it's trial and error, I think this is his most elegant film. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if it's my favorite. I still have to revisit The Breakfast Club because it's been a while. But no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this a yes. Um, I would look forward to watching it again, knowing a bit more about what to expect out of it. Because I definitely had a, a certain idea of what I thought it would be. And then it wasn't that. And it kind of <laughs> knocked me for a loop. Especially because the pacing of this movie is a little odd. Because like... The first half is like, oh, I want to get the girl. And then the second half is like the looming threat of a fist fight. Yeah. And it just is, it's just odd and not what you would expect. It feels so authentic to teenage life where like it's not a perfect three act arc. That's just not how life works. Life is messy and things intrude on your plans and forces you to reprioritize. And that very much feels like what we're getting in this movie. Mm -hmm. And I also find it interesting that this movie comes out the same year as planes, trains and automobiles. So as far as I'm concerned, if you were to make like a bell curve of John Hughes's filmography, we're at the apex right now. Um, there's definitely good stuff that's going to come after. There's also baby stay out. God, I do not like Baby's Day Out. <laughs> <laughs> that's at the end of the bell curve. Uh -huh. um, so there's, you know, still good stuff that's going to come out, but I feel like this is his peak. Like, we've hit the top of the mountain for John Hughes because this movie is fantastic and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is the best movie he's ever made. Uh -huh. um, and everything from there is sort of, like, climbing up, trying to, to reach these heights, and I he doesn't ever reach them again. There's great shit that comes out. Don't get me wrong. He's He's got plenty of good stuff uh, still down the road, but they don't have it in like a well-rounded way 
quite like these two movies. No, and I hope you all watched Planes, Trains, and Automobiles at least once over your Thanksgiving season. Yeah. Because it's one of the, like, four Thanksgiving movies that exist. (laughs) (laughs) There's plenty more than that. Okay, notable ones. (laughs) Well, friends, that takes us out on some kind of wonderful, happy 35th anniversary to an absolutely wonderful film. We hope you enjoyed it. You can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and now Hive at BJ Colangelo. And you can still follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velocitrap underscore trap underscore tour. Maybe I'll get Hive eventually. That just, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I have the bandwidth for another website. Well, it's I, also really buggy on Android right now, and you're an Android user. True. I just, I don't even use Instagram that much as it is, so <laughs> we'll see. Y'all, y'all, you will hear it here if I decide to get on Hive. <laughs> uh, and thank you, as always, to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use Tidal as our theme song. Harmony, what cool band do you want people to check out this week inspired by some kind of wonderful... So the best I could figure is that a music motif of this movie is it sounds like the 80s. (laughs) You're not wrong. But I decided to go in a little bit of a different direction with this because Watts is named after a Rolling Stone and there is some like 50s and 60s sort of rock pastiche incorporated into our 80s music. Mm -hmm. I'm going with something that sounds a bit more like that. So the album I want you all to listen to, if you're curious, is Midnight Manor by The Nude Party. What a great name. It's so much fun. Um, They're specifically trying to recapture a jangly rock and roll style that is really similar to like a CCR or like a 60s Rolling Stone. And they just fucking write like gritty, fun rock and roll party music. I think they're just, they're a delight. Amazing. Everyone check out the nude party. Mm-hmm. It's fun to say nude party. That's exactly what drew me to this band first. <laughs> All right, friends, we will see you next time. Thank you as always for listening. And don't forget, save that last dance for us. Bye. Bye. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.